Hail and well met, Traveler. Welcome to the Tavern. Did you know this is the place where more than half of the greatest adventures in history have begun? But before those adventurers took their first steps, they watched and calculated who would join their party. Why look over there? There's a mighty barbarian from the Frozen Lands. Strong, mighty, full of honor and wisdom. I happen to know that one. They go by Matt Rossi. And look over there to the right. That woman working away on her mechanical dog. She's cunning, witty, and I've seen her bounce more than her fair share of ne'er-do-wells out of here before I can even blink. I happen to know that she goes by the name Liz Harper. And me? Oh, my name's Joe Perez. And I'll be your tavern keeper. Welcome to Tavern Watch. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Tavern Watch. I'm one of your... Well, podcast NPCs, Joe Perez, uh, one of several tabletop enthusiasts on the site, and I'm joined with my wonderful co-hosts today, Matt Rossi and Liz Harper. How are you doing today, guys? Hello, hello. Life is misery, but let's talk about <laughs> role-playing games instead of talking about life. This is why Matt is a cult leader in my cyberpunk game. Anyway. Um, <laughs> let's do checks out. Yeah. Uh, we are going to be talking uh, today all about, well, one D&D um, or D&D in general, because that is sort of the new big thing that's been happening. Uh, and there's actually a lot going on there and a lot to discuss. And while it is only in playtesting right now, uh, it is something that is some uh, we should be taking a look at and giving feedback so that we can help the product become something that we want it to be. Uh, as we move along, uh, there is also some other topics here that we want to cover, uh, particularly, uh, well, Matt, you brought this up and I want you to take lead on it. So what just happened with Spelljammer? Okay. So I've, I've been pretty vocal in my like for the Spelljammer setting. I thought it was a really good product. I'm really happy with it, but I, I did notice the Hatter Z in Spelljammer have kind of a, it's a weird inclusion. I, I don't know how to break this down to people basically the hattersy are essentially the victims of colonialism to the point where they're actually magically uplifted via it yeah and their entire racial history is rooted in this this narrative of you know people came from space and and taught them civilization it's like if eric von daniken wrote a DD supplement is kind of what it's like and I knew that because it was part of the original uh, Star Frontiers. But one of the things I've noticed as I've gotten older is that all the stuff you liked as a kid ends up having some stuff in it. And you're like, oh, I did not notice that. Or I didn't remember that. Oh, that's bad. Uh, and the, the how does he thing is one of those things. Um, and it as they, they put out a statement, there was a lot of, uh, of outcry, not just on Twitter, um, everywhere. Like, you know, forums, people in stores, everywhere. Uh, I went to the local gaming store, which I don't do very often, quite frankly, because it is, it's downtown Edmonton, and I currently live in the arboreal tundra of the Northlands, a.k.a. North Edmonton. So it's a, it's a bit of a trip. Um, but I was in there uh, looking at other stuff, and, and somebody 
uh, a dude in his fifties. So, you know, about my age was like going, you know, I don't understand all the outcry and somebody, and like one of the clerks who was a a woman much younger than him uh, looked at him and said, because it's racist, Jim. (laughs) And that is the outcry. It, It is a racist trope. And they've, you know, Wizards has realized, oh, this this was originally the origin from the 80s, and we probably should have, yeah, yeah, we probably should have not included it. <laughs> we, in retrospect, we should have, ha- we should have looked at this more carefully. Um, one, go ahead. One thing I find really interesting is that the racial description for the Hadozi in the playtest content did not include any of this. Yes, it true. was. Yes, and. You know, that's not just like it's normal for them to add add a bunch of stuff after the playtest, like a bunch of story stuff. And most of the races are the description, at least, is exactly the same as the playtest content, which was published months and months and months before the book. So what I'm wondering is how did we go from the playtest content to what we have in the book, which is like, which is hard to there's no way to know. How yeah. this ended up, one possibility is simply that the people doing the playtest thing handed in their, you know, their form, and then someone was like, "Oh, this is kind of dry," and went back to the original source material and just lifted it because they own the original source material. Yeah. So I can imagine them doing that. But it does seem odd that they they put the Hadizi out. This this could have been a case of somebody who was involved in the playtest going, "Ooh, okay, I don't like that," and then you know, hoping you know, I'll just take it out here and hopefully that will just pro- it'll progress forward. I don't know. I wasn't there, but regardless, yeah, I mean, it is it is something that really needed to be looked at before the book came out. Um, it is so weird that no one thought of this when Wizards of the Coast has been making a really significant push to diversity. Did you not have anyone with semi modern sensibilities reading this? Um, yeah, I don't. I, I honestly don't know. I actually, I'm, I'm wondering if part of it is the speed. We talked about this when Greg was on the show too. Um, there is a certain new cadence for every product that Wizards is pointing, uh, putting out now, right? Uh, and you can't maintain that speed without mess-ups happening, right? Like, yeah. things are going to be missed, because if you're putting out a new book every three months, even with extended mm-hmm. play tests, like, I'm not, I'm not trying to hand-wave it, and I want to make that perfectly clear, because it never should have happened in the first place, but I could see a world where stuff like that gets missed, uh, you know, because they are rushing to production and maybe not proofreading or copy reading like they should or at the same quality that they should. Although let's make this point too. But they um, also they can afford to do it. Just second. I'll just I'll just say this much. I've seen books that I've literally spent years in uh development and editing. Years that, that have had plenty of time, still have big errors and things like this included, just because you know, you look at the same document over and over again. And you stop processing it. If you're looking for errors, you you you're, you're looking for you're looking for them. You're looking for them, but you're on one level. You're not doing the reading of of comprehending what does this say and what yeah, does it mean. I'm not saying that they shouldn't have been. They should absolutely have been caught. But I can understand that it wasn't caught because these people, again, as as Liz pointed out earlier, she's like, don't they have anybody with with modern sensibilities? And in some cases, the answer is no. A lot of the I, people involved, you look at the names of the developers on this game, a lot of them are the people go, who harken back to the original release of Spelljammer. To them, this stuff is, they've already familiar, they've already seen this a hundred times. It doesn't even register to them, oh, oh, wait a minute, 
Chariots of the Gods was actually bad. Uh, this this idea is actually just, racist. Just this is like this isn't a typo. This isn't an it's it's error. This is someone took the two paragraph racial description and replaced it with like a four Six paragraph paragraphs. racial description. Yeah, from from an older thing that is really not good. Yeah, yeah, like absolutely. I mean, can can I? I want to take a minute and like read the original playtest description versus like the description that actually got printed. Go for it. Which is so the original is Hedozies are people with simian features that long ago adapted to live amongst the tall trees of their homeworld. They are natural climbers with feet as dexterous as their hands, even to the extent of having opposable thumbs. Membranes of skin hang loosely from their arms and legs. When stretched taut, these membranes enable a Hedozi to glide. The first Hedozis were hunted by large natural predators to survive in this hostile environment. They developed an instinctual sense of community. Today, the same instinct compels many Hedozis to cultivate friendship, knowing there is safety in numbers. That's like, that's a shortish description, but we have had shorter descriptions of races. And and, and they replaced what they replaced what was released with was not much larger than that. I think it was like about twice as long. No, I'm talking about the the, the updated one, the the one that they just released as part oh, of the okay. errata, right? Yeah. Like, so, so here's what actually wound up in the book. The first Hadozis were timid mammals, no bigger than house cats. Hunted by larger natural predators, the Hadozis took to the trees and evolved wing-like flaps that enabled them to glide from branch to branch. Several hundred years ago, a wizard visited Yazir, the Hadozi world, with a small fleet of spell-jamming ships. Under the wizard's direction, apprentices laid magic traps and captured dozens of Hadozis. The wizard fed the captives an experimental elixir that enlarged them and turned them into sapient bipedal beings. The elixir had the effect of intensifying the Hadozi's panic response, making them more resilient when harmed. The wizard's plan was to create an army of enhanced Hadozi warriors for sale to the highest bidder. But instead, the wizard's apprentices grew fond of the Hadozis and helped them escape. The apprentices and the Hadozis were forced to kill the wizard, after which they fled, taking with them all remaining vials of the wizard's experimental elixir. With the help of their liberators, the Hadozis returned to their homeworld and used the elixir to create more of their kind. In time, all Hadozi newborns came to possess the traits of the enhanced Hadozis. Then, centuries ago, Hadozis took to the stars, leaving Yazir's fearsome predators behind. In addition to being natural climbers, Hadozis have feet that are dexterous as their hands, even to the extent of having opposable thumbs. Membranes of skin hang loosely from their arms and legs. When stretched taut, these membranes enable Hadozis to glide. Hadozis wrap these wings around themselves to keep warm. Yes. Yeah. It, you know what this feels like to me? Hmm. This feels to me like the second one was actually the first one. Yeah. And then they decided they were going to change it, made the change, got the change in the playtest documents, and didn't actually use the changed version when they were printing the Re book. So I think regardless of though of, of whether whatever the case is of how it made it out there, it's a problem that it made it out there, right? Like that's Oh, absolutely. Point. Yeah. It should not have happened. And and uh, the interesting thing about it is this is also part and parcel with a bunch of other problematic stuff that that sort of is baggage that comes with Dungeons and Dragons as well. There's a mm -hmm. lot of content that is I mean, it's older content is racist. Matt and I will talk about like a bunch of stuff that we love from back in the day and, and like some older books that we have and older box sets that we have sitting on our shelves. But the truth is like a lot of that stuff is is problematic at best. Oh, you um, want to talk problematic? Uh, here, Here's one of the there's one of the ones that I always think of. One of my favorite books when it came out. Absolutely 
cornerstone of my understanding of the game was a little book called, and this book came out in the 80s, Oriental Adventures. Yep. Okay. Oriental? That's the word we're using, guys? Really? And it came out again in 2002. They made a new version of it, and they still called it Oriental Adventures. And yeah. I mean, and the second one was really good as well, but there's like a lot of stuff in it that it, to me, it's it's simple. It's simple as the fact that there's entire races of of beings in D anD D who are just plain evil, despite essentially just being humanoid. Mm-hmm. Like you know, it's one thing to say it's one thing to say that a demon is evil itself because it's a demon. You know, it it is not a person. But when it's just you know, oh well, goblins are all evil, vicious dog murderers. It's like why? exactly just just because so we can kill this baby goblin and it's fine oh yeah absolutely stick away this is really feeling a racial essentialist guys and that stuff is in there and you have to confront it and you have to evaluate it i feel like this was a case of a really a really big failure to do that Mm -hmm. and wizards has been trying really hard to do that um and i think one D will actually give us a good example of stuff to talk about in terms of them doing that so yeah i i I don't feel like this was deliberate. I don't feel like this is anything near as bad as, say, some company that doesn't even have the intellectual rights to, to say, Star Frontiers, making the world's most racist version of Star Frontiers. But it is bad. And it absolutely is something that should have been corrected. I'm glad it was corrected. Um, but yeah, Liz is right. It doesn't, it's like you had a perfectly good description. Why did you then break out the longer one that was worse? So yeah. I, I don't know. We should clear, like, make it completely clear that Wizards of the Coast did issue an apology for this. And, you know, like a really explicit, we acknowledge we made a mistake and we apologize, which I think that's a great move to see a company actually take the time to do that. And in future printings of the book, this this, uh, description has been edited to remove all of the weird racist colonial stuff. And in digital versions of the book, it's already gone. So, and I should also trying, but and they should also call it. They do thank people for basically calling them out on their bullshit, right? Like, so it's it's one of those things where, like, when they make a mistake, they're grateful for the community for calling them out. They're grateful for having that conversation and having that stuff pointed out. Unlike other companies that then double down on the mistakes, right? So mm-hmm. I got to give them at least a little credit for that as well. Where yeah, I, I definitely and it was rather quick in their, their turnaround and the response to it too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But I do think that we can then, I think we should move on to actually talking about one D and D or D and D one as both Liz and I keep trying to call it. I, I do the same uh, thing. It's because one D and D. Yeah. It's Officially one it's one D and D. In so my I'll heart, probably, it's D and D one. I'll probably, I'll probably internalize that it's one D and D as soon as they change the name for the release. And I'll have to start. 100%. Or, or, you know, D and D series one. I don't know. <laughs> So but we should talk about it. So, yeah. So D and D one, like we mentioned is the, or, or one D and D. See, I did the same thing. Uh, <laughs> one D and D is the play test set for the, what is essentially going to be an eternal version of the game. Uh, right now, the history of Dungeons and Dragons is that it's been sort of parsed out into editions. Um, there's, you know, the Dungeons and Dragons, advanced Dungeons and Dragons, AD and D second edition, third edition, 3.5, four, and now five E. Um, 5e has been the one of the longer running ones and is the one that most people that have come to the hobby recently are familiar with. So now what they're looking to do is sort of how do you evolve your game? How do you evolve this game that has 
so many live shows now, so much content that's produced around it, so many people that are playing the game now for, you know, maybe the first time, um, the largest player base that they've ever had in a Dungeons and Dragons, like period, is now here. So how do you do that without alienating people? Because this is a problem that they ran into, uh, and Matt and, and I have talked about this a plenty, uh, is that switch from third edition to fourth edition where players felt uh, it was too abrupt of a, a shift and sort of, you know, I don't want to say fell off, but it, it wasn't a, off. it wasn't it, as there, popular as it could have been. Let, let, let me put you this way. There wouldn't be a game out that is basically evolved from third edition if people had been happy with fourth edition. That's just a fact. Paizo wouldn't exist if people had all gone. The problem with D&D has always been this problem, and it's been this problem all the way back to the D&D, AD&D split. When you put out a new edition of the game, if you don't change enough, there's no reason to do it. If there's if this is still basically the same game, then why am I getting why am I spending the money on new books to play it? I've already owned all this D&D stuff. Why am I buying your books again? But if you change it too much, the people who have been playing it already they're like, I don't want to have to relearn all this. Or the fact that I, I wanna... maybe have spent, you know, I'm looking at my shelf right now. Uh, what's what? 20, 30 books total. Yeah. 50 bucks a pop, you know? Yeah. And and that's the thing is there's people have often said that role playing games are the best bang for your buck of any purchase for entertainment. And they're right because you can use them for years. You can do all sorts of cool stuff with them. Yes, you're correct. It's a really good bang for your buck, but it's still a it's a, still a luxury hobby in terms of its pricing. And that's just always going to be there. Um, so with, with the additions of D&D, when you see new additions come out, and this is historically accurate, like you can go back and look at the charts. They're, they're all, way, all online. When you see the second edition of AD&D come out, at first there was, there was a big bump. Mm-hmm. And they, they kept the bump going with the kits and so forth. But then there was a pretty steady decline. As a lot of people just said, no, I'm going to stick with, with original AD&D. I don't want to play the second edition of AD&D. And the way they got around that for third edition was by making it such a big release and making it so different that it felt like a completely new game. But it was enough of D&D to keep people going. There's still always a bump. There's always that period of some people come in and they, they buy the new book, so there's a bump. But then there's often a trough because the, the original, the previous version of the game that you people had, they liked it and they're sticking with it. Uh, one of the things that in the hobby that's called being a grognard. And um, you know, it's 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 a reference to French mercenaries. It, it's this game. This hobby started with wargaming, guys. It, there's it some did. pretty it nerdy stuff did. out there. Um, but third edition managed at one point to be so omnipresent, have so many books that it kind of made itself simultaneously incredibly popular and ubiquitous, and also very hard to to actually play because it requires so so much material to to actively like keep up it, with everything. It didn't really require it to keep up. I don't quite agree with that, but I think you're, you're hitting on the, the truth of it in that you never knew what somebody else at your table owned mm-hmm. and was going to say, well, this is an official wizards product. So you should use it too. And it's like, dude, I don't have the second dungeon master's guide, or I don't have book of nine swords. I have no idea what you're even trying to get me to do. I don't have player's handbook six. What are you talking about? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm not when joking. Fourth, no, he's not joking. Um, when fourth edition came out, uh, the fall off was real. Like this time it didn't get the bump because so many people were so resistant to getting more books and when they'd already spent so much money. So recently Wiz- wizards was putting out third edition three, 3.5 D and D books 
until the very moment they dropped fourth edition. There, I think there's some other factors too that need to be taken into account with it as well too. Uh, so D and D third edition was uh, everything that Matt said is is absolutely accurate, and it was a very ambitious product, and and I think we need to keep that in mind moving forward. Fourth edition came out at the height of MMOs when MMOs were everywhere and omnipresent. Video gaming was sort of becoming more mainstream. This is during the time period of the Night Elf Mohawk uh, commercials and, you know, William Shatner doing commercials for World of Warcraft and Lineage 2 coming out and City of Heroes. And uh, And I actually I'm going to jump in with something here that's related to this. Mm -hmm. I know this from a fact. I played D&D in the early part of the 2000s with the people with the people who worked at Wizards of the Coast and with people who ended up working at Paizo. Mm -hmm. One of my DMs was the was the main guy on, on Pathfinder. They were all playing World of Warcraft. Yep. I know this because I saw them all the time in game and we did dungeons together. So they were big into MMOs. They played the the living daylights out of them. Everyone that was out. Now, the reason I bring this up is because it's a time period thing, too, that I think affected tabletop role playing in general at that time because it wasn't just D&D that had a little bit of a lull, although it was with 4th edition. Um, Other ones suffered as well for a lot of the same reasons people were... People who were getting their role-playing fix on the tabletop were now starting to find it in virtual settings, uh, for better or worse. Uh, there was a, the sort of a reverse pendulum swing as far as that went. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is we're looking at D&D. Or I'm going to keep calling it D&D 1. It's going to keep happening. Uh, one D&D is now poised at another pivot point as far as general consumption is concerned, which is... We have more digital tools and technology for content consumption on the tabletop space that has been growing exponentially for a number of years, ever since D&D 5th edition first released, but especially in the last couple of years due to the nature of what's happened across the world and the necessity of those digital tools. And a lot of what they're they're dealing with here is sort of poising to springboard into taking effective control or use of those digital tools in an eternal format. So a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about, keep that in mind because that does play a factor here with some of the changes and some of the things that they're going to be talking about moving forward. Fair to say? I'm sorry. I couldn't hear what you just said. I said, is that, do you think that's fair to say? I think that is pretty fair to say. Um, Liz, you started D&D with 5th edition. Yeah. And you've played a lot online. Um, you I do mean, have a live game, right? I know you have a live, an in-person game as well. but. I- no, no, um, not anymore. Don't? It's it's all digital. So, so from your perspective, your experience of this, how how have you seen it change in the time that you've been playing? I mean, that's that's hard because I really have only been playing for a few years now, and I've only been playing in the five E era. Um, I really got started with Critical Role, which you know we've had just a giant emergence in the presence of games being played online. And I mean, we always think of Critical Role, that's like the 10,000 pound gorilla of D&D streams, but there are tons of D&D streams, probably at any hour of any day, you could go to Twitch and find a D&D stream. You could go to YouTube and find a, a D&D play video that's been posted five minutes ago. It's everywhere. But in the time I've played, I haven't seen a ton of evolution, certainly not to the rules. There are some new sensibilities that I've seen coming out where Wizards of the Coast is really leaning into diversity and uh, content written by people of color and minorities. Um, 
so I feel like they're really trying to push the game that direction to try and give a 50 year old game modern sensibilities. And that's kind of a tough transition, particularly, I mean, we're talking just a minute ago about Spelljammer, which was written in the 80s and has much earlier sensibilities. But I mean, rules wise, 1D&D is like kind of mind boggling because I haven't seen any rules changes in the time that I've been playing. It's all been 5e well i mean 5e did change uh origin to the custom background they did allow that part way through as well right uh, yeah that's true tasha's cauldron of everything came out a couple of years and ago that really felt like part of this sort of push towards diversity and inclusivity mm-hmm. because it was like okay well what if i want to play an orc who's like a bookworm and they become a wizard and it's like same with morning Canaan, rich- right yeah i mean morning Canaan's continued the Tasha's rules. Morgan Hannon's took those rules and like codified them for every race. But um, well, yeah, I was just gonna say, why don't we use the breakdown that Liz wrote? I was just going to say, I was going to let Liz take point <laughs> on it. Since the first bullet point you have, I think is actually relevant here. Do you want to go ahead, Liz, with what they're, they're doing? Uh, sure. Uh, the one D and D play test content we've gotten so far is it's not the whole game. We just have like a little piece of it. And it's all about character origins. And we do see things that we've seen in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, in Morgan Kanan's Monsters the Multiverse, and in some Unearthed Arcana that's come out over the past year or two. We're kind of seeing that more modern sensibility where you have a lot of choices. And of course, the first thing is race. You know, your character's race is key to it's it's key to your Obviously, it's key to your character. It's the framework in which you build your character. Yes, that's a good way of putting it. But it's no longer completely defines your character. It feels like a lot of that has moved into backgrounds. It used to be that your race defined your stats. And, you know, if you were an orc, you were always strong. And Tasha's Cauldron of Everything gave you control over that and said, well, if you're an orc, you can choose to put you know, do p- figure out how you want to do your own ability scores. You put two in whatever you want, you put one in another one, or you put one point in three things, and it's your choice. You can decide if your orc spent, uh, spent their youth hitting the books and becoming a really smart wizard, or you can say, no, my orc lifted weights and they're super strong. It's a choice. It's not completely defined by your race. Um, so, but in, in 1D&D, they've completely remove statistics from race. Your statistics have no tie to your race. Which, I mean, that does remind me of Tasha's, where you have the choice. Your statistics are now tied to your background. Which I think, character-wise, story-wise, that makes a lot more sense. It's not the race you were born into. It's what you've spent time doing. You know, you could be an orc, and you decided to be a carpenter. And This town here is full of orcs who've lived in peace for hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah. Picking flowers, and they're all massive, swollen <laughs> death machines. Why are they all so big? You have no idea how dangerous these apples are. No idea. So yeah, it, I got you there. It's also funny that you mentioned that because, like, one of the one of the things that Fifth Edition had that I'm not sure people realize it had was backgrounds that, from better or worse, generally didn't give you much or were often forgotten by players. Like, yeah. How many times have I ha- I can count on one hand how many times I've had a player. Uh, call on their folk hero background in a current 5e generation 
right? Yeah. Uh, I, I did I did always make sure to take a background, and I usually took a background more for the skills than the mm-hmm. special ability that it gave. Because it was usually like, um, like one of them was like, you can get people to let you sleep in their barn. And it's like, woohoo! <laughs> I'm going to use that all the time. Which doesn't sound like a big thing, but when you have no money to pay for an inn, yeah, of course. Yeah. But, but it really but then, comes down to how often does this come up? Exactly. So making it more central to the statistics or at least how it affects your character build, I think makes more sense because that's what people use backgrounds. Like literally that's what Matt just said, right? Like he, he uses backgrounds to get skills out of it. Um, so I thought that was, that was really good. And didn't they also get rid of half races as well, Liz? Um, yes. That's the other big racial news is that, you know, you can no longer, there's no longer half work. There's no longer half elf. Those aren't specific races, but instead that doesn't mean you can't play a half race of what, but it's now it's whatever choice you do. It's like, okay, my character's mom was an elf. My character's dad was a human. I'm a half elf, but it's not defined in the book the way it is now. You basically, you choose what your parents would have been. And then you say, okay, I'm going to be, you know, you like pick, I want to take the stats of a human, or I want to take the stats of an elf. And to some extent, you can mix, (laughs) to some extent, you can kind of mix and match stats. I think you can take like, you could pick your speed from one or the other, but or I your, think yeah, part, your size or what have you. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, things like that. So you can if mix and match your mom was a little bit. Orc and your dad was a gnome. You could be like gnome sized, <laughs> or no, I'm serious. You be a gnome sized. Yeah, you can yeah. do that now. You can do half dwarf, half orc, or you know, half elf, half dragonborn. Uh, you could do that. Um, so I, I got, I got to jump think, in though because there's something yeah, in this that I it. don't like. Hmm. The the Ardling. That is you already uh, have. The, div- the supernormal yeah, beings that who were born me. on the upper plains or have one or more ancestors originated there, you've got them already. They're called ASMR. Just use the ASMR. If you want to have some ASMR have beast heads, fine. But, oh, this irritates me. Uh, this is f- feedback. Don't do this. <laughs> you can have um, Ardling be a kind of ASMR. You don't have to have the, the Ardling just show up in now. Now we're the half-divine ones. No, that's it's it's silly. It's silly, guys. <sighs> okay, I should I should clarify that the section on races only adds one new race, the Ardling. And it doesn't include a lot of races, which I feel like is just because this is plague test content. They're kind of yeah. getting the basics. Yeah, you know, human, dragonborn, yeah. dwarf, can, elf, gnome, halfling, orc, tiefling. I do like that they make orc, though. It's finally in one of these books. It's canon orc. Not half orc, orc. Yeah, not half orc, yeah. orc. You can play an orc. Because basically the half-orc was their kludge get around to let people play orcs while still leaving orcs as evil. And it's like, you know, you can have orcs as a, as a threat in your campaign and a danger that have to be fought off. And they don't all have to be evil. Like orc babies don't have to be naturally evil just because the orcs are attacking you. Because in real life, humans have been attacking other humans for generations without, you know, every, every human is inherently evil. So... Yeah, I, I do like that they got rid of that. And I do like how they're handling uh, the, the mixing and matching thing. Uh, I saw some people get a little twee about it. But I, in general, I think that the racial changes in, D, in one D&D, and I'm still trying to call it that, are, are good changes. And the background changes. Joe, uh, actually, Liz, can you talk about the backgrounds? Because I wanted to talk about those, but I want you to get to talk since you wrote this bullet list. <laughs> uh, well, I'll give kind of the rundown and then you can talk more um backgrounds are 
you know, they're kind of like they are now. They're where your character comes from, what they what they've been doing with their youth, what their trade is. But uh, ability scores have now been moved to backgrounds. You pick your ability score bonus based on your background, plus two to one stat, plus one to another. You have two tool proficiency, two skill proficiencies, one tool proficiency, one language, one first level feat. And yes, every background now includes a feat. We'll get more into feats later. Mm-hmm. And uh, some starting equipment that's valued at 50 gold pieces, which the starting equipment used to be mostly class and a little background. So I don't know if there's going to be any starting equipment tied to class anymore or if they're just moving it over here. I don't know. Either okay. one could make sense. I'm trying to remember how much the starting value is 50. currently. So yeah, it's, I don't it, is, think it gonna... is 50 gold, point, uh, gold pieces worth yeah. of uh, stuff. Yeah, so I don't really see how they, they're going to have equipment in class and background. Again, this is playtest documents, so they might change it around later. Yeah, well, I think it used to be most of your equipment came from your class, and you'd get like a couple of things from your background. Like you'd have a gaming set. Or your tool. Based on your, yeah, yeah, something like that. Small stuff. I like almost everything about this, as long as they keep it that you don't necessarily have to adhere to a background in uh, in order to get X stat distribution and allow you to put your plus two and plus one anywhere, because that was really the best part about Tasha's, right? Like, mm-hmm. is it didn't really matter what you picked for anything. You can just put your plus two and your plus one wherever you wanted. The one thing that I would like to see added to this is a third option, which Matt will probably remember from third edition uh, was the option to have three plus ones. Um, I think they had the three plus ones in Tasha's, didn't they? They did have it in Tasha's, but it's not explicitly mentioned here. Correct. Okay, yeah. So hopefully they do bring that back. Uh, the three plus ones, that's essentially the variant human from current 5e. And and I think it's a good rule, uh, generally speaking, to get three plus ones. Because D&D scores are weird in that you, t- you take two points in a in a that to bump you into the next level of bonus mm-hmm. like a 17 and a 16 and a 17 have the same bonus but if you have a 17 and you put a one into it you can you'll go up to 18 whereas if you have a 16 you'd have to put two in it to get up to 18 so there's periods of time where it's actually advantageous to have a plus one instead of a plus two you'll go up you'll get the same benefit that you would have from a plus two in a different stat without yeah so i think in general that that, that is a good move and i would like to see it I do also like that you can pick a, a pre-made background or customize your own, that that's actually going to be in the rules now. That's another Tasha's thing, isn't it? Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. Um, I do like Yeah, the- I mean, so I think that means you'll be able to customize your stats however you want, basically, just like you can now with Tasha's rules. But uh, the, the the one that they have, the, there's a list here that, that Liz wrote out. The, the, the ones for playtest are the Acolyte, the Artisan, the Charlatan, the Cultist, the Entertainer, the Farmer, Gladiator... And uh, guard, guide, hermit, laborer, noble, pilgrim, sage, sailor, and urchin. Um, I, I, there's some that I would like to see in here that aren't here now. But they've also one thing we should talk about is that when she says one first level feat in here in the document, there there are now levels to feats, and that's going to come up. We're going to talk more about that when we get to feats. But basically, when you get a background, there's certain fundamental like first level feats, the, the ones that kind of like start you on your path type feats that they've built in. And that's a really nice change. I think I actually think it works pretty well. Uh, what do you guys think about that one? Um, I think feats are really interesting ways of customizing your character right now, but 
there's a real barrier to entry of getting a feat. So you wind up not getting them until later levels if you get them at all. Because most D&D games, you know, you don't get to level 20 where you have all of your stats finished and perfect and you can pick up like three or four feats. I don't know. Um, this is a... Because as... Go ahead. Sorry. As it stands now, uh, I believe Variant Human gets a feat just as a racial perk. And yes. uh, humans humans will still... As it's written in the playtest document, humans still get an extra feat. But other than that, you could get your first feat at level four. But you would have to choose, do I want stat bonuses to increase my stats and make me better at everything? Or do I want a feat that makes me better at a specific thing and may or may not provide stat bonuses? And that's a, that can be a hard choice, particularly at lower levels, when your stats may not be very high. Yeah, and that's why I think it's good to have feats be built into the background. Yeah, because that I like way it. You're going to take one, you know, because it's free. It's not costing you a stat bonus. I also think that feats need to become more interesting. And this might be a hot take and 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 for some folks out there, but I think the problem that 5th edition had versus like 3rd edition, 3rd and 3.5, the feats were a lot more varied and a lot more interesting. They did come with prerequisites in some cases. Some of them had uh level requirements, some of them had other feet requirements like you had to essentially like talenting and wow right you had to take a this talent to get to another talent um but it felt like a little more customizable with your character like you could have a party of four clerics and each one feel wildly different and while there was some things to help differentiate in fifth edition now feats was not one of them yeah, feats were feats are very treated like. Well, if you really want to use these, you can. Unless, unless but, it was like very specific things, like if you were a gunslinger and took the gunslinger specific feats, because why wouldn't you? Uh, because they were developed specifically for that class in mind as a supporting feature to it. So, like, yeah, but again, it's like you know, you see, all the gunslinger is very much not part of the main rules. Exactly. And, and they do that. They, there's this whole thing in the in the five E Player's Handbook about how this is optional. Your your DM may not even allow you to do this. You may just have the uh, stat bumps, and that's it. And I think that that I think uh, Liz is on to something here. And I would say that if anyone is listening to this and saying, "Hey, what feedback do they have on feats? Uncouple feats from stat bonuses." Yeah, agreed. If there's a if there's a stat boost, that should just be for stat boosting. And feet should not be on that track. It shouldn't be. I have to choose between plus two to, to like to, to like a bonus to a stat or a feat because they shouldn't be considered the same thing. They're different things. Stat boosts, as Liz pointed out, are universal ability. Like I'm a fighter, I get an, an extra plus one to hit because I boosted my strength to. That's universal. That's I will be using no. that for almost everything I do. Now there's a feet just gives you something. So I think they should be separated. There's a design thing that we're going to probably talk about when we get to the rules change that I think actually feeds into this as well. Cause I think it's a, a perceived failure of fifth edition. Uh, so in fifth edition, like we're talking about feats and stats sort of being on the same level or being uh, sort of like bundled together. Uh, and I think part of the, the problem with that is stats in fifth edition became very, very important because Things you stats became the only way to really increase a lot of the things your character did, whether it was your survivability or whether it was the damage you do, unless you get like some ridiculous magic weapon, um, at least early on. Right. So like 
even if you're in full plate, having other stats that like give you uh, constitution bonuses, make you more of a tank. Uh, or if you're playing a monk, you want to raise your wisdom or your dexterity so that you're more survivable on the front lines. And it became so integral to your character surviving because the lower levels of fifth edition are brutal. Uh, you can kill a player party with a brown bear in at level one of six players. Level one can die to a brown bear. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it The power creep or power skew is very heavily in favor of the dungeon master. Um with the most basic of enemies until you get much higher level and things are balancing out. But at that point you want feats here. to survive that bumper, right? Yeah. Or let, stats. Let me put this way. There's, there's a way that this happened to me. I was running a group for my wife and one of her friends and her friend's child. And I had them fighting one kobold and that kobold would have killed them all. Mm-hmm. Like he seriously, like I rolled like, like three twenties. On that, I'm like, what is happening with this kobold? He's a death machine. I did not intend this. To be. They were going to capture him and interrogate him. Now he's he's literally kicking their butts. I had to make the kobold take a like. They offered him milk, and he became their friend. And I had to let that happen because otherwise he was going to kill all three of them. And he just didn't stop rolling twenties. I, I don't, you know. Now that's it's it's a bit of a an edge case, but that can happen in fifth edition. First level characters don't have a lot of gas in the tank. Um, you don't really even get like a lot of classes don't even get their signature. I'm, I'm this kind of whatever until third level um, with like, I think warlocks and clerics being big exceptions. I can't remember all if there anyone else is, but sorcerers no. might be too, right? Yes. Yeah, sorcerers so, are level yeah. one. Yeah. But so, yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I, I think that feats it, need to be taken off of that kind of thing. And well, I think what, sorry, go ahead. Uh, one thing I will note is the playtest document only lists level one feats right yes. now, but none of them have any stat bonuses tied to them. Yeah, that's but, true. Except tough. Except for it? tough. Yeah, it's tough. Gives oh. you, it gives okay. you hit points. Uh, uh, okay. But bundled in there, and that's actually what I was going to do is I'm going to read off the list. So bundled in the playtest, you have alert, crafter, healer, lucky, magic initiate, musician, savage attacker, skilled, tavern brawler, and tough, which are all first level feats, as Liz pointed out. Um, tough being the only one that is tied to stats because, well, it's making you tougher. Um, the rest of them give you other bonuses, whether it's an extra skill proficiency, uh, whether it makes your attacks hit a little bit harder, whether it makes you better at improvised weapons, but they're start or, or you can reroll dice or whatever the case is, or it gives you access to magic. Um, the core group of this though, looks like these level one feats are sort of to give your character flavor and maybe a direction to build off. Of. Like if you're building a tavern brawler, you might wind up going into feats that emphasize found weaponry or like turn yourself into essentially an action flick from the nineties. Um, and, that's where I think feats feel the best because that's where they think they felt the best in, in third edition and other games that have feats. Um, it feels the best when there are ways to customize your character to play how you want it to. And it seems like that's what they kind of want to do. Uh, minus tough, which I don't think will ever go away because hit points are hit points. <laughs> yeah, basically, you know, tough is always a safe bet. Any class can make use of tough. Hmm. But I, mean, I, I think. But it also means like you could have a fighter that has magic initiate. So you can have a fighter that that you can, as long as you meet the prerequisites uh, or whatever they have the conditionals for that can cast magic missile or something like that, like or give you access to something that makes it a little more flavorful, a little more like a fantasy novel. See that I have a specific example on because when I made my character to play in your other wheeled game, Joe, mm-hmm. um, 
instead of taking a stat bonus at level four, I took, um, oh, what, it may have been Magic Initiate. I think you did. Because I wanted, yeah, I wanted some spell casting because I thought it was a good fit thematically for the character I'd built who had been like raised in this magical cult worshiping this god. And I thought, you know, okay, it makes sense that she's picked up a little bit of like kind of dark cleric magic. But I was a rogue and my main attacks are all melee. And that was that was actually a big hit to the character. I mean, that was not the smart choice if you want to make a powerful character, but it was a better choice for flavor and characterization. And so that's not a fun choice to make. Whereas if you can find the sweet spot that marries the two of those, making it a smart and fun choice and yeah. something that, that lets you customize your, your gameplay and still feel effective, then you win like that. That's the winning combination right there. Yeah. So absolutely. like pre precisely in these new rules, I could have taken magic initiate at level one and my character would have started out with this cultist background, probably that's in the playtest rules, and have also had like immediate access to some magical spells that were in theme with the background. Yeah. We haven't seen what they're going to do for classes yet. No. One of the things I hope they do is they bump everybody's uh, subclass to level one um, because mm -hmm. it's just, I understand the idea that they were going for that you start out a couple levels. And you play as just the general thing and then you pick up, this is the thing I was meant to be, but it ends up just being, you know, spend two levels waiting to do the thing you want to do. Uh, so yeah. considering all these changes and they're good changes, um, I'm hoping, I really like the, uh, the backgrounds remind me of a toned down version of some of the backgrounds we were seeing in like the Strixhaven book. Yes. Which those backgrounds were, 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 I, I think they were good. I think they were testing for I think the Strixhaven ones were were not only thematically appropriate for Strixhaven which is a multiversal multi-universal uh, school for wizards from Magic the Gathering uh but it might have also been play test or probing to see if people reacted to it favorably to look towards something like this because they were those backgrounds were really well received. Oh they're yeah they're great backgrounds but I, they're and, also very strong. And they all included a specific feat with mm. them. Yep. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is a good thing uh, that the, they're bringing feeds into this. Uh, let me see what else we got here. There's a lot to talk about. Um, yeah, there is. Let me like, as an example of the feeds, I think the new feeds add kind of more power. Like the, these are things I can see myself actually using more often than the existing feed. Mm -hmm. Like, let me read out a new one and like the original one. Um, like alert is on, it's uh, it's in 5e, and it's also in the playtest document. The uh, 5e version of alert is always on the lookout for danger. You gain the following benefits. You gain a, five a plus 5 bonus to initiative. You can't be surprised while you were conscious, and other creatures don't gain advantage on attack rolls against you as a result of being unseen by you. Uh, now, I mean, you're going to get the initiative bonus, you know, kind of all the time whenever you're in combat, which is usually a lot. But the other two, you may you may not even notice those because, you know, maybe your DM throws stuff like this at you and maybe they don't, in which case you've got all of these cool abilities. They're just not that helpful. Um, so in the playtest content, you have alert which gives you initiative proficiency. When you roll initiative, you can add your proficiency bonus to the roll, which I like that a lot better because the other thing 
besides the other thing is that it's weaker at first if you take it at first level but it will get stronger as you get stronger and your proficiency bonus uh gets higher so you get a benefit that keeps getting better and grows with you Mm -hmm. and the the other part of that feat in the playtest content is initiative swap Immediately after you roll initiative, you can swap your initiative with the initiative of one willing ally in the same combat. You can't make the swap if you are the ally is incapacitated. And that's another cool thing. That's a thing you will use or could use every time you're in combat. Oh, for sure. Whereas, yeah, the previous previous version is like, maybe this will never come in useful. Maybe I'll forget I have this. It comes in useful so rarely. But I'm already thinking of, I'm already thinking of games we've had where like we've had the healer who want the person has built as a healer wants to go later on in the round. And so has to save their action loses out on a super high initiative. And the person that you want doing your opening in the combat, whether it's a rogue or the fighter or whatever rolls poorly uh, and is going later on in the turn order where you could just in this particular case say, hey, you should go first and I'm going to go later and do cleanup when everybody gets hurt and you can make that swap. You can be a little more tactical about it. It also sort of encourages more interparty. Um, I don't want to say interparty play because you should already be doing that, but uh, interparty tactics of like discussing it and moving stuff around so that it gives players an advantage. Right. And that's Matt brought this up, brings this up often, and I think it's very true in, in D&D, is in video game design, one of the, the things that some developers have talked about is it's not their job to kill the players, it's their job to lose convincingly, and it's kind of the same thing in D&D, and this lets players have more tools and be in more control of it, so you have an easier time losing convincingly. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you don't have to like cheat as much to lose. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's always good. But a lot of these feats are that way, uh, she picked a really good one to do an example of, but the savage attacker one's nice just because it's, it's pretty much the same as it always was, but it it's still a nice first level feed. Uh, this, and it's no longer limited to, you know, orcs get this. It, it's, you know, anybody who wants to take it can get it. Uh, it's, it's rooted in a background. So yeah, I, I, I'm overall, I'm pretty happy with the feet choices here. Now I think, cause we're going to, we're getting a little long here in the tooth. Uh, I just want to go we'll start going into the rules that were, that they displayed. So many rules. So I'm going to, I'm going to read off some of these and then we can, we can hit on the ones that we want to talk about afterwards. So uh, the rules changes that they've highlighted in the play test right now is rolling a natural 20 on a D 20 is an automatic success. Rolling a natural one on a D 20 is an automatic failure. If it's not possible for a character to succeed, they shouldn't be asked to roll. Uh, we're going to talk about that later. Cause I have feels, uh, cr- <laughs> Critical hits are only available to physical weapons, not spells. Uh, Grapple, set speed to zero. Disadvantage on attacks except against the grappler. Can be dragged or carried, but grappler is slowed. Escape by rolling dex or strength. DC to break grapple is eight plus strength modifier plus proficiency bonus of the grappler. That is actually a huge change. Uh, Incapacitated, you cannot take actions or reactions. Your concentration is broken and you cannot speak. And you have disadvantage on initiative rolls. Also kind of a big change right there. Uh, inspiration gained whenever you roll a 20 on a D20 or at the DM's discretion can only have one at a time. Slowed moved at half speed attacks against you have advantage. You have disadvantage on deck saves and spell types are now divided into arcane divine and primal. That last one is actually a return from fourth edition. It absolutely is. And I'm glad that yeah. I'm glad that they're doing that actually. Cause I think it makes yeah. sense. Uh, I want to talk about grapple before we, 
do the whole thing about natural twenties and, and natural ones, because one thing you didn't, you didn't mention, uh, you, the way you initiate a grapple is different now too. Oh, okay. What is it? Um, when you're making a grapple, I'm going to go to the actual document. So I'm to, I make sure I, I don't give you bad information here, but, and of course it means I don't have to like get through this entire huge document. Come on, come on, come on. Yeah, I do. Yeah, here I we do. are. Uh, when you make a grapple, uh, you you don't have to do the uh, opposed check anymore. Grapples are an unarmed. Just it's just a comment of attacking. It's an unarmed attack. You just grapple. You you roll to hit. Um, so as a result, since the dex since they've changed it, so you can use dexterity, and so they've changed it so it can be just an attack. Monks are now grappling fiends. Uh, monks can grapple people. I know it's 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 in the thought about combat. Okay, that's what I was asking because I didn't see it under the grapple yeah. section. Yeah, go to the go to the section that says that's labeled unarmed strike. Uh, and as a result, that that's how you you can now do that. You can just attack with an unarmed attack and grapple somebody. And there's no like they don't get an immediate roll to get out of it. Either you hit them or you don't. If you hit them, they're grappled. It. I will jump in to say it does still say that your bonus to hit with an unarmed strike is strength. Plus proficiency. Yeah, I'm assuming they that also converts to dexterity for like it'll probably so it'll probably when they break down into to features and stuff like that. I I can't imagine it'll always be like that, but it's good that it is good to note right now that it is only strength, and there are size restrictions still on it as well. Yeah, um, but it has still, to be same size or one larger, and you have to have an open hand. The way this works now, if you had like a monk right now, monks do not want to grapple anymore. It's it's not the thing. They they're not good at it. But with the, the rule switching it so you can use dexterity to break out or to you know keep from being broken out, this makes monks much better at grappling. This monks I are will, now they're right up there. I'll add again that escaping the same thing. It's uh, eight plus strength plus proficiency or, bonus. Or not, dex, right? No, well, for, it doesn't say that. It does not say or dex. Oh, the DC. The yeah, the DC. it says yeah. the you DC can roll to dex, escape. Yeah, yeah. Yes, so, you can I roll mean, dex to get out, but, but it kind of makes sense. It's strength based. From a real world, real world combat perspective, it kind of makes sense. Um, I've done uh, sword training and stuff like that in real life, and there is a one-handed sword technique where, like, you have an open hand in your other hand, where like you grab somebody to try to move them around or use it as like deflecting or, or whatever. This leans more into that, and I can kind of see, I can kind of see what they're going for, and I think it kind of makes not, sense. My my point here isn't to say that this is bad. Uh, I, I have some th concerns with it, but I'm not saying it's bad. What I'm saying is it's very different mm -hmm. because yeah. right now, the way it works is if I want to grapple somebody, I have to get up there and make a grapple check, which they immediately have to make a check to, to avoid like whoever rolls better. Now, that's taken out of this. You no longer have that situation. And if they don't, if they basically allow monks to use their decks instead of strength for this, uh, then monks are going to be grapple demons. It'll be almost, it's just going to be like, Oh God, here comes a monk. I'm never going to do anything. I'm going to have this guy on me like Spider-Man. Um, so I, it's just something that I wanted to mention before we moved on to the, uh, the changes to rolling, which I know Joe has thoughts on. So I'm going to let him go first. Unless you, Liz, do you have something you want to say about it? Or do you want to let Joe go first? No, go for it. So I understand the idea of having, because right now in fifth edition, if you roll a natural 20, it's a critical success and lots of things happen where uh, if you crit with a spell attack, you crit with a, a regular attack, you get extra damage and, and all sorts of fun stuff happens. Uh, rolling a one is not generally considered a critical failure in combat. 
uh, right now because you can actually hit a skill point where a one is not an automatic failure depending on what you're fighting. In the current the, the rules that they're playtesting, a 20 will always succeed no matter what happens, and a one will always fail no matter what happens. My problem with that is every time you roll a dice, no matter what your skill level or level is, your character has a 5% chance to succeed or fail. And I do agree with the point of if the character doesn't have a chance of succeeding, they shouldn't be asked to roll. But I don't like the automatic failure portion of it really very, like, it doesn't seem very player friendly to me. And the reason I say that is because, and Matt and I have talked about this, and I, I went on a little bit of a Twitter rant about it. You can reach a level where you are so skilled at something that even a failure is a, for you is a success, right? Like, or you're fighting something that's so derpy or dumpy that nothing is like you're going to hit a news. It's a slow moving pile of goo. You're going to hit it. You're not just going to completely throw your weapon all the way across a field when you're being charged by like at the speed of five feet around. Like that's not a thing that's going to happen. These things are slow. So I kind of don't like where that's at. I can understand what they're trying to do and make it feel like there's more stakes maybe for the attacking. And so that you can't actually, you know, always succeed. There has to be some sort of thing. But one thing that I think they did really well in fifth edition is that's where monster traits came in. Like those oozes that you could hit because they only had an AC of eight and everybody in the party, even if they rolled a one had a plus seven minimum to hit and would hit it. Um, it didn't take damage from regular attacks. It didn't take damage from piercing or slashing or bludgeoning. It had to be magic or things like that. And it sort of balanced it out a little bit more to make it a little more, in my opinion, fantasy or cinematic. So I don't generally like that. The ones automatically fail. Uh, also in the current edition, a 20 on a skill check does not mean you automatically succeed, which is where the second part comes in of you shouldn't be asked to roll if you can't succeed. And I agree with that. Um, but I also don't think a 20 should automatically succeed no matter what. Just don't ask the person to roll if they can't succeed. Part of the problem is, is that people don't realize that a lot of times DMs are kind of pressured into letting people roll. Mm -hmm. People are like, well, I'm, you know, I'm a bard. Like, let me roll to seduce that dragon. And you just kind of go, all right, go ahead. And then when they roll a 20, like, yeah, like, no, nope, didn't work. Because you know they can't seduce the dragon. The dragon is not attracted to human bards. Uh, but with this rule, if you you don't have that option anymore. It takes away the DM option of letting the player roll their dice just to to get them off their back. Or but sometimes just say, to make somebody feel good and participate, right? Like Yeah, yeah. Because like, you don't I'm letting you roll because you really want to roll, and I'm gonna describe what happens next in as funny a way as I can make it out to be. And, like, you know, the dragon, the dragon blinks for a couple seconds, bends down and goes a little small for me, but I like the energy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like stuff you can like make that. it a thing, but I don't want to make it so that if he rolls a 20, that dragon is going to bone him. And, and that's, and that's you it. Know? Like it is, I feel like it sort of hems you in as a DM to not really have that wiggle room anymore. Cause now the, the rules are hard coding. If a player rolls a 20, it works no matter what, or if a player rolls a one, it fails no matter what. There's no narrative leeway. So it's, it's not a rule that I would personally use. Should it make it to live Liz? How do you feel about this as a, a uh, new ish or like, you're not a new player at this point. You've been playing for a long <laughs> enough, but as somebody who's been playing a little more recently than we have. See, I, my feelings on it aren't as strong as either of yours. I can see like interesting storytelling possibilities with this as well. Like 
it's an interesting story if you have like the fighter with an intelligence of eight rolls on an arcana check and rolls a natural 20 and it's like wow you you know you could come up with like an interesting story on that like that Literally, one in that a million one book you read one time because you were bored <laughs> silly you actually mentioned this Yes, it mentioned exactly this. You accidentally picked up the wrong book at the library. You were looking for fighting techniques, and then you started reading this. And so, it, like, you could come up with some really funny story moments from that. But as both of y'all have said, it removes wiggle room. Um, I also do kind of like the idea of critical fumbles. Because I think, again, that opens kind of interesting story elements. Because no matter how good you are at something... Sometimes you could screw it up. You could have just tons and tons of experience with something and still you're having a bad day. You haven't had your coffee yet. Whatever. You just like you mean to attack and you drop your sword. I agree, so I but think, it's the 5% that bothers me. <laughs> yeah. So I think both of them offer interesting story possibilities, but it does feel like this should be an option, not a rule. Like maybe put this in the book as... You know, you can just say, you know, if you remember just, how you guys made sheets into a, like something you could or could not use, make this into something you could say now, as a possible house rule. You could do this. Now there, there's an. Uh, I was talking with a, a couple of our our readers and listeners on on Twitter about this, and there's an old thing from third edition that I think could, if they really wanted to go this route, it's a little cumbersome, but they could maybe try to find a way to to make it a little more elegant. And Matt might remember this. It's the confirming crits and confirming fumbles. Yeah, I, I knew you were going there. Where, like, if you rolled a natural 20 or you rolled a 1, you then rolled the d20 and you had a 50-50 shot of it going, like, basically 10 or lower, it it was a critical fumble or it was a regular hit. And a t 11 or higher, the, it was just a normal miss or it was it a critical depends on hit. If it, was the, uh, it depends on if it was a skill check or an attack. I think that, I yeah. remember for attacks, if you rolled, if you had a critical fumble, if you rolled a critical fumble, uh, I think you had to roll. And if your attack would hit, if this roll would be a hit, it wasn't a critical fumble, but you still missed. Mm -hmm. um, and the same was true for critical success. If you rolled anything that would hit, now it's a critical hit. You did critical this person. Whereas if you rolled a one on this confirmation check, not a crit. <clears throat> so you just got a normal hit. Uh, and I, I could see that working. It is, however sort of already baked into the rules with advantage and disadvantage. I don't know if they're going to want to do that. I, I don't see them sure. wanting to put another mechanic like that in and advantage and disadvantage are probably the, the cornerstone mechanics of fifth edition. And I can see so. where they're trying to put <clears throat> that in here too, with the inspiration being gained on whenever you roll a 20, but mm -hmm. also I kind of feel, I also am not the biggest fan of that, of having an automatic inspiration, I don't um, mind having automatic inspiration, but I want it to not devalue bardic inspiration. I also want it to not devalue coordinating and working with the team of uh, like your fellow players in the party for like positioning or things like that as well. Cause I think I personally think that that's sort of important, but also if you're already giving somebody an automatic critical hit on 20, no matter what they do or critical success on 20, no matter what they do, does a natural 20 need anything else with it to make it more special like that? That's kind of my yeah, thought on fair. it, right? I'm pretty sure, like, I'm I'm more mellow on that. I don't, Liz. Do you have any feeling on that one? Because there is I, something I want to talk about that isn't the inspiration thing. I like this rule because how many times do you just forget inspiration exists in the game? How many times do DMs forget inspiration exists in the game? Like, I watch several game streams 
and like 90% of the time, no inspiration is ever handed out. And I mean, I think in our games, I can't think of a single time anyone has gained inspiration. And this gives you like a really reliable rule that says, okay, when something, you know, when you roll natural 20, something really great happens, you get inspiration, you're inspired by your success, you're kind of riding high on that success. And that does kind of make thematic story sense. And it's also something cool when you roll a 20, because right now, if you roll a 20 on like an arcana check, it's okay, you're probably going to succeed the arcana check, but it's like nothing cool and special happens because you did something really well. So I like having a consistent way to give it out. Does this rule need to exist? Does D&D even need inspiration, considering we have so many games right now that just don't use inspiration? That I don't know, but I do think it's kind of cool to have an extra effect on a natural 20. Okay. I'm going to move to the one that I think really needs to be addressed. Critical hits are only available to physical weapons, not spells. I play physical characters almost exclusively. My, I'm playing a bard in the Witchlight game, and I like my bard. But generally speaking, I play physical characters. I don't like this rule. Agreed. I get why it exists. Um, it can be pretty terrifying when you know a spell that already does a bunch of dice of damage suddenly gets a crit. But... Critical hits are only available when you make a weapon, you make an attack, when you roll to hit. So there's a penalty that can possibly keep you from hitting at all or doing anything. You can't get a critical fireball, I don't think. Nope, you can't. Because you can't roll, you don't roll an attack roll for fireball. So I don't feel like letting people crit with spells like, say, Eldritch Blast is bad. And I don't like the idea of it not being there anymore. I... Um, I agree because from a spellcaster standpoint, like at early levels, at least in fifth edition as it currently stands, and we don't have the full breadth of spells for the new version uh, that they've been talking about, but if, at early levels, spellcasters deal a lot more damage than physical combatants almost across the board. However, at about level, I think you get your second attack at what, six when you're a physical fighter? Five. five. Uh, level five for fighters and uh, fighters, barbarians, and paladins. I think technically speaking, rogues, rangers, rangers, yeah, rangers, yeah. rangers yeah. get a second attack at five, uh, five. But, uh, I think for like rogues, it's not the same. Like I think it's based on dual wielding, but they do get an offhand attack and then they use it. Now the reason I'm bringing this up is because the, at, at about fifth level, physical characters statistically, and I've seen this in in like actual like in the wild start to outpace spellcasters because spellcasters are still beholden to things like spell slots. And while they may have a very powerful spell, they may only have one fifth level spell. And then once that spell slot's gone, it's gone. And then they start reducing their resources and they start to trail off. That's sort of the design of the class. Well, it's not just that there's another problem. Mm-hmm. Um, let's, let's, let's use the fighter as an example. And the reason that you, that this is really noticeable with the fighter fighter has action surge. Yep. Action Surge is so powerful that I have seen people advising like sorcerers and wizards to take a three-level dip in like a two-level dip in fighter. Just to get action surge. Just to get action surge. So you can cast your big spell and then another big spell. Because they're only the spellcaster is only getting one action, and that one action they can only really cast one spell. And I mean there's some edge cases where you could do like a cantrip and then a big spell, but in general you're going to be doing, okay, I dumped fireball in the group. Okay, most of them resisted it. I'm done. That's my round. But also, it's it's particularly noticeable in longer combats, too. And I'm not saying that mm-hmm. I'm not saying that this is always the case, but it's 
it's interesting to me from a, an encounter design perspective where if you have the big bad and a bunch of minions, those fights can take a while and that can take more than a handful of turns. And if it takes more than a handful of turns, your spellcaster might be completely tapped and relying on uh, cantrips to do their damage at range. Like uh, you mentioned Eldritch Blast. Warlocks don't have a whole lot of spell points. So like Eldritch mm-hmm. Blast is sort of their thing. And when you start getting to those higher levels, like at one point in time, and I'm using this as a, a, a an example from my own personal experience, my gunslinger fighter was able to do 324 points of damage to an ancient black dragon in one round. Like it was level 16, 17 at the time, but like that's obscene. And the spellcasters couldn't even come close, even when they crashed. So like, I, I don't like taking it away from spellcasters unless there's something else to balance it out, which we haven't seen yet. So I don't like it, but I'm giving them the leeway to say, okay, what do spellcasters get instead? Do they get more mm-hmm. spell slots? Do they get their own version of action surge as a feat? Do they get spell surge? Um, are the spells, do they hit a little bit more to make it average it out? Um, and to Liz's point earlier, yes, most campaigns don't get to super, super high level, but if they get to middle levels, like they get to 10, 12, 14 in that range, it can feel bad to be a wizard or a sorcerer sometimes. What do you think, Liz? Uh, I don't like it. <laughs> I mean, what I feel like they're trying to do here is to give these physical classes something like extra special, something that makes their crits feel really cool and awesome. When spellcasters always have kind of fla- spellcasters have a lot of flashy stuff. You know, you have a lot of options as a spellcaster. Usually, you have a bunch of different spells for a bunch of different situations. And if you're a fighter, you're going to go in. It's going to be like, okay, I'm going to hit it with my sword. Okay, I hit it. I'm going to hit it again with my sword. Okay, now my second attack. I'm going to hit it again with my sword. Okay, now action surge. I'm going to hit it again with my sword. Like, you know, there's that sort of sameness to it. Sure. And if you yeah, crit. And that's why, yeah, that's why cl- like subclasses like the Battlemaster are so interesting to people because you can now say, I'm going to use blank strike and now it's going to be a different kind of attack. And it kind of feels like you're casting spells with your sword. Um, so, yeah, I, I get you there. Yeah, but... If you're trying to give someone something special and you take something special away from someone else, that just doesn't feel good. That never feels good. But I I do kind of feel like they're trying to make these physical damage classes feel like really cool and awesome and fun and give them something special other than every turn you hit something with your sword. I mean, I'm kind of feeling that with the ranger I'm playing with y'all right now is like, okay, what am I going to do this turn? I wonder, I guess I'll try and hit it with an arrow. Okay, I'll try and hit it with another arrow arrow now. And this is where, like, uh, this is where I would normally be advising people, like, and right now because we're we're playing uh, shorter sessions, um, like it it can sometimes feel like that when there is a combat or if combat's the main focus. But there are other things like DMs can do, like, okay, instead of having stuff like that, have combat puzzles take the god of war route where there's like combat's happening but have other stuff that like a physical person can think to do aside from just hitting things with a board um put in a couple of weird drake type monsters and these things on the ground that you have to hit and uh, the party will (laughs) adjust to them uh our final final weirs game was really good i'm sorry we did a great job there i was very happy but i mean that's like one of the things that comes to mind is it would be kind of cool if one of the, the the one of the things sorcerers get that I've always liked is meta magic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I, I don't think it should just be a sorcerer thing, quite frankly. I think every caster should have their own version of metamagic. Well, one uh, thing, let me just jump in briefly, is that it was either Tasha's or an unearthed arcana that added a metamagic feat that any spellcaster could take and get mm-hmm. their own metamagic. And I think really that that's, cool. yeah, I think that should definitely be something that, that goes forward. And I think that to a certain degree, every physical character should have maneuvers. Like if you are, one of the things about playing the paladin that I've been really enjoying doing in, in when Joe's running our, our, our weirs game is that I have this, I don't just have like, I hit it, I hit it again. I have this thing like, do I want to use up my, one of my very few spell slots to smite this guy? And as a result, paladins kind of already have this thing where a crit is extra special to them mm-hmm. because if a paladin crits, they are immediately going to bump a smite if they have one because the smite damage will go up. Is smite considered physical weapons, not spells? Like is, if you just gotten rid of smite crit? You might uh, have. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not that much of a paladin player that I'm personally outraged by that, but it's something to consider. Like what happens to, to edge cases like the warlock who you can have a hexblade warlock who's stabbing people with swords, but doing damage magically. Uh, and you can have, or pa- weapon, weapon packed gunslinger warlocks are a thing. They were, they were mm-hmm. there before gunslingers were created. Yeah. Uh, you can do a whole bunch of different stuff with a combination of spells and damage. It, it makes gish classes like the, uh, Eldritch Knight or the arcane trickster. Like this could affect them. And now, it is worth considering how it will do so. And I think that goes back to what we originally started talking about at the beginning of the, the conversation about one D and D. Hey, I did it right this time. Um, if you're letting players customize their class and their player character experience as much as you are, something like this, I think becomes potentially a limiting factor. So like, it, I think it needs to be looked at unless you're giving those spell casting players something extra or special to compensate. I don't see this being a rule that I would potentially use myself, even if it makes it alive. I yeah. mean, I think, the, like everyone should have choices in combat. You want to have interesting choices. And of course, some of those, like y'all pointed out, are can be added by encounter design. But um, some of them are certainly added by class and some class and some classes have more of that than others. And I do feel like particularly the physical classes have fewer. Uh, Which like is fine going- for some of them. Like, quite frankly, yeah. if I'm playing a barbarian, I don't want... To have to, like, I want to hit it with my axe. Okay, roll a <laughs> die. Doom, did it. Roll the 20. Critical. Uh, more dice, more dice. You know, I, I like the fact that the barbarian isn't, I'm going to attack you six times. It's like, I'm going to hit you once, and then you're going to fall down. Because that's what I do. That's my thing. But yeah, it absolutely is the case that, you know, there's a lot of sameness. Like you pointed out with your with your bow. You're just basically just, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shoot him. Twink, okay, shot him again. <laughs> now, I can at least assure you that I've designed an encounter where that's not necessarily the only thing you need to worry about, Liz. <laughs> I mean, one thing I can do as a rogue is you do have spells that modify your bow attacks in different ways. But as a ranger, I have a very limited number of spell slots. And usually I fire up, well, I actually aimed uh, Hunter's Mark. Is it Hunter's Mark or aimed yep, shot? Hunter's Mark. Uh, Hunter's Mark. Yeah, I fire up Hunter's Mark because that's just extra base damage and done. That's always yeah, that's always useful. That's always valuable. And there are other spells I could take, like I could take Zephyr Strike, which while it's active, it's active for sixty seconds. I believe it's sixty seconds. Um, 
I could uh, move without provoking opportunity attacks. And that could be something really useful for a ranged character who gets into a melee. You're just like, nope, I'm noping out of this. No, you can't hit me because I'm fast like the wind. Um, but it's like, I don't have that spell because that is a situationally useless, situationally useful or situationally useless spell. And uh, Hunter's Mark is just really reliable all the time. And I can't mix and match those spells. I've got to choose one or the other, and I have to choose. Rangers also don't prepare spells every day. I pick spells, and those are the spells I have forever. So there are several limiting factors that prevent me from saying, okay, this turn I'm going to do this kind of thing. This turn I'm going to do this kind of thing. I can't switch out types of shots every round because I don't have the spell slots. And I have to choose my spells, and then they, they never change again. And that's very, both of those things are limiting. So that reduces the choices you make. So, I mean, I think what, at the end of the day, what we're all saying is more player choice is more gooder. Yeah. Yep. Also, I can, I can feel probably, this cringing at that. <laughs> should probably at this point wrap it up, because Liz at this point only has half an hour to go get watch Critical Role. I know, and are you are you caught up with Critical Role, Matt? I know what happened. Yeah, I, I watched. Yeah, okay, the, yeah. I always, watch, yeah, I always like, watch it when it comes out um, on on YouTube because it's just easier for me to like. Okay, I'm going to skip oh, the agree. ads and so forth. Yeah, um, and uh, you know, I don't I don't have to pay focused attention for like four or five hours. Which yeah, is that's a difficult. bit much for me at this age. Yeah, shiny, shiny yeah. things distract me. Except. Um, Except I have to know what happens. Oh yeah, yeah. I definitely. must know. So yeah, so after I'm last watch week, it live. Yeah. So let's let's uh, let's wrap it up, I guess. <laughs> so Liz can go do that, so I can get food. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, both of these things, all of these are good ideas. Um, I well, I do want to point out that this is only like the first round of playtesting. This is yeah, not the yeah. only playtest content we'll get. At oh, we haven't even point, seen classes. We haven't yeah. seen like yeah. And we know, and we and, know that they're responsive to feedback. They've been very responsive. Uh, we literally just talked about it at the top of the show. So you know, play the stuff and uh, give your opinions. Classes, classes could you know address a lot of the things we're talking about that we've been talking mm -hmm. about right here. Mm -hmm. That could there could be so many game changers still to come that we do not know about yet. So I am looking forward to what is next. Agreed, as am I, because uh, I'm interested in what this eternal format is going to be, especially with the embracing of the digital tools. We didn't even talk about how D&D Beyond is now owned by Wizards of the Coast uh, and will be leveraged as a, a digital tool set and how they're trying to integrate that with the next version of, of everything that's coming out. Uh, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of stuff to talk about, and we'll 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 definitely cover it in the future. Uh, but I do want to thank everybody because podcasts like this and Blizzard Watch is made possible due to your generous contributions at patreon.com slash Blizzard Watch. Your continued support means this podcast site and community is able to thrive and grow. Blizzard Watch supporters enjoy exclusive benefits like early access to the podcast, better chance of having your question answered on our podcast or the queue and an ad-free site experience. Again, thank you very much for joining uh, us for this. Matt, Liz, thank you very, very much. I always appreciate talking tabletop with you both. It's always a good time. We are good. <laughs> <laughs> good rolled, thing happened good. That, that's what a natural 20 looks like when Matt rolls it on socials. All right. <laughs> <laughs> natural 20, natural one. Who can say? Yeah. But thank you very much, folks. We'll see you next time. <laughs>